Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. Hello, history friends. Welcome to this collaboration. Today I am joined to talk about the Boxer Rebellion, thankfully, because I need a teeny weeny bit of help for a number of reasons. I am joined by Chris Stewart from none other than the History of China podcast, which you can find by going to, well, very simple, straightforwardly, thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com. Go and support Chris. Go and check him out. His podcast is top quality which is of course why he is here and he gives us some great insights he gives us some great insights and we talk about a whole range of topics to do with the boxer rebellion and imperialism and all sorts of stuff and i had a really good time doing it chris is a great guy he's also a member of the agora podcast network which you should check out as well and it was great having him on for this five-year birthday party just a teeny tiny note about what you're about to listen to whatever it is about Chinese broadband, perhaps they don't like us talking about their history for a number of reasons, but yeah, occasionally the signal gets a bit iffy and you, you'll you be able to notice, you'll be able to know what I mean when I say iffy, it's not by any means throughout the entire episode, it only happens two or three times, but 
I've been very fortunate by recording these episodes through Skype, of all things, would you believe that the signal's been generally quite good. This is the only episode really where it kind of it kind of flashes in and out a tiny bit. I got rid of the worst of it, don't worry about that. But yeah, just so you know, just so you know what's to come. It does not, by any means, take away from the episode. It's not Chris's fault either. He's just doing what he does best, talking about China. And this time, he's talking about China with yours truly. So I hope you enjoy it, guys. And I hope you'll let us both know, both me and Chris, know what you thought about the episode. Because we both had a great time. Enjoy, guys. Thanks, and I'll be talking to you very soon. Welcome to another collaboration episode, History Friends. My name is Zach, and as always, I'm joined by an esteemed guest in history podcasting. Today, I am flattered, humbled, and honoured to be joined by Chris Stewart from the History of China podcast. How's it going, Stewart? It's going very well. How are you, Zach? I'm very good, thanks. Very, very good. And thanks for joining us. I believe you are well, all the way... Well, thanks for having me on. Oh, oh, it's my pleasure. I believe you are all the way on the other side of the world right now. Well, to me, anyway. Uh, <laughs> to, to most of us. I'm in Shanghai, China. Yes. Mm, great. Well, that means you should have a, a, a fairly a fairly reasonable uh, experience of, of basically what their Boxer Rebellion is, how to pronounce all the names, which still <laughs> trip me up, and really set it in more context than even I did, because... Let's talk a bit about your podcast before we get into this. I mean, sure. what, how would you describe your kind of, I mean, it's a history of China, which means mm-hmm. it's not a Chinese history, which means it's in chronological order. Is that right? That's right. Decided that I, what I wanted to do was take Chinese history from the very beginning of, well, Chinese history and work forward from there. Uh, it started out as just kind of me wanting to put uh, a sense of perspective and, and understanding just for myself and it turn into this whole gigantic project. Right now we are actually in at the very end of the Tang Dynasty in the early 10th century. Wow, okay, cool. And what episode, what episode number are you on? <laughs> oh, uh, 118, I believe. Right, right. So a good, a good in-depth, but not too over the top, in other words. No, we try to keep it accessible. The understanding is very much that uh, most people listening are not going to have had much of a background in the subject prior to coming to the show. So we try to keep that in mind. Sure. Oh, that's cool. And I believe you, like When Diplomacy Fails, are on Patreon. We are, indeed. Mm. That is, uh, if I may plug it. Oh, please, go for it. (laughs) It's patreon.com slash the history of China. Keep it simple. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. Um, as someone who has also joined Patreon, I mean, I like breaking the fourth wall in these episodes. This will come out in about. This will come out in about June, but I'm obviously we're recording it in March, so that's just mm-hmm. the way it is. <laughs> but very recently, in other words, I set up the Patreon, and it's been going really, really well, and I'm very happy with it. So, if anyone happened to, I don't know what are the odds of this happening, but if anyone happened to listen to your podcast, not realize you had a Patreon and then come across this, then, well, they know where to go now. So, yeah. That, those four people will, you know, now they'll know. <laughs> that could be $20 each, though. You never know what might happen. Uh, hey, I'm not knocking it. I'm not knocking it. <laughs> well, cool. Well, we're, we're kind of ready to get into this now. Maybe we should just start with a bit of background on the actual Boxer Rebellion itself, because we can't very well just jump right into it. And it, it takes a bit of scene setting, of course. So Absolutely. Maybe... So, so maybe how much you know, not necessarily about Chinese imperialism, but maybe just give us a, a general course of the way Chinese history went, maybe just in terms of the dynasties and how we got to the Qing, Qin dynasty. 
by, say, 1900. Okay. Well, as I'm sure many of us know very well, Chinese history is an extremely long and detailed sort of affair. (laughs) Um, Surprise! So let's see if I can boil this down. We get our first dynasty, it's the Zhou dynasty, and that's in about the 800s BC. And that, well, a little bit beyond that, but you get this period of rebellion, and it's supplanted by the so-called uh, the Qin dynasty, which doesn't last very long, and then it's supplanted by the Han. And basically what you get is this this cycle. It's the so-called dynastic cycle, where a new dynasty comes in, and they claim the so-called mandate of heaven, which is you know the divine mandate to rule. It's uh, akin to the European divine right of kings. Sure. And it's this you know lovely backwards-facing sort of post facto justification where we won the rebellion, so obviously heaven was on our side the entire time. But if you didn't win the rebellion, well, obviously you were just a rebel. Yeah, very, very convenient. Oh, it's, it's extremely convenient if you win, yes. And on and on until we hit the, the 13th century, and surprise, it's the Mongols. They're, they're knocking on the door, and then they mm. kick the door in, and they take over. Uh, they take control of China, pretty much the rest of Asia. And they established themselves under Kublai Khan as the Yuan Dynasty, which established itself so firmly that even the Chinese consider it to be a legitimate dynasty of China, even though it's a conquest dynasty. But after they kind of weaken, they're kicked out by the so-called the Ming Dynasty, um, which is once again a Han Chinese ruled dynasty. The Ming go ahead and they rule until about the 1640s when we get kind of the cousins of the Mongols, which are the uh, Aisin Goryeo Jurchen, also known as the Manchu people. I'm glad Uh, I didn't have to pronounce that. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm here, you know? (laughs) The Manchu people from up uh, north of the Korean peninsula, they're cousins to the the Mongolic peoples, but they're kind of more settled. They're farming people, not so much nomadic. Regardless, they rise in rebellion. They were a part of the, the Ming sort of hegemony. But they rise up in rebellion against the emperors who become weak and corrupt once again, and they declare themselves to be the Qing. And there's just a little bit of a name game sort of background. The The word Ming actually means bright, and it's made of the characters for the sun and the moon, both of which have fire characteristics to them. Oh. Uh, the Qing word uh, means like pure or clear, and it has the characteristics of water and, and blue water. So it's kind of this idea, this sort of symbolic idea of water putting out the fire. Uh, right. The name choice, which oh, is kind of interesting. Okay, I see. Very, very, um, very effective, like Im- imagery-wise, kind of. Yeah. Very, very clever. <laughs> they knew what they were doing with their names, in other words. It, it seems to have been very, uh, very deliberate. Yeah. Right. Right. So the Qing does the Qing take us up right to modern? Well, not modern, but nineteen hundred ish. So yeah, the, the Qing, they, they ride down from the north, they end up taking control of China with a lot of uh, ethnic Han help, granted, but yes, that takes us, they, they are going to take us all the way to the end of the Chinese dynasty's tradition altogether, and they're only ended in 1911 with the, the Qinghai Republican Revolution, which sure. will create the Republic of China. Hmm. Very good. Well, no, that wasn't so bad, was it? You did a good job, I think. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, that kind of sets us up well. Uh, I know for for my for my part, I like my interest in China normally draws me there when the kind of colonization and, and European imperialism starts to happen and really mm-hmm. starts to happen with a vengeance. 
the opium wars are, are mostly known of today from between the 1830s and 60s when Britain basically fought the Chinese for the rights to sell its drugs there so mm-hmm. that it would be able to access tea easier and lovely stuff. So that brings us then, after that experience in imperialism, and of course the French got in there as well, they had Indochina. Oh, yes. And through a series of conflicts then, the Chinese power was gradually weakened to the point that by the end of the 1880s, the Japanese were on the scene and it seemed like a new Asian power was encroaching on on the Chinese kind of staying power, if you like. Yes. And then 1894 to 95, you had the Sino-Japanese War, which basically transformed massively the actual balance of power in Asia. And it, mm-hmm. in, in a sense, it kind of confirmed what was already known, that after so much years of, of imperialism, the Chinese basically couldn't hold their own against what were, well, the Japanese were essentially a westernized power in, in, in every way but name, really, by this stage. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting that uh, in China in the mid-1800s, uh, they both realized at pretty much the same time that they were completely outclassed by the Western imperial powers who were taking a, a very keen interest in them as well. The Meiji restorations, you know, considerably more famous uh, but uh, China also was undergoing its own, what's called the self-strengthening movement, or the Zichang Yundong, 1861 until the uh, mid-1890s. Mm. But unlike the Japan's restoration, which was you know tremendously successful, China's self-strengthening movement was only a very limited success, mostly because of its own internal bureaucratic corruption and sort of graft and uh, these things that crop up time and time again in, in Chinese bureaucracies. Sure. Then and before and now. And then there was the there was the additional uh, facet of the overt hostility to letting any foreigners in on any projects that they wanted to build at all. They wanted to sort of do it all themselves and not let any, you know, Westerners or foreigners or any of their designs in. Mm-hmm. And so, so it leads to these these weapons and these ships that are, you know, roughly on par with the Western models, but they're much more expensive to make. There's a whole lot fewer in production. Half of the courts, pushed by a guy named Prince Gong, he wants to Westernize, he wants to modernize. But the Empress Dowager, Sisi, uh, she's very anti-Western. She's part of, she's heads up the conservative element of the government, which, you know, uh, they used to say, you know, didn't want to Westernize at all, didn't want to do any of these reforms, but more and more scholarship is saying, well, they just wanted to go more slowly they wanted to roll out these reforms in a more uh controlled fashion it sort of depends on what side of the what coin you fall on we don't really know yeah i i found with Zershi or or Zershi or like she seems to have a lot of different names depending on what mood i'm in when i choose to pronounce <laughs> her name but i think yeah, yeah that this this is the this is the lady, this is the individual that will take us up to the Boxer Rebellion, and she has a, a fundamental part to play in it, doesn't she? She has a very interesting Absolutely. story. She's a very interesting story behind her, because it's not like she started out as, like, the wife of the emperor. Mm-hmm. She started out as, like, a, a concubine and kind of, like, worked her way up then. So she is, is one of the, the really singular women in Chinese history. She's she's right up there with, I mean, really only compare her with the, the only... Uh, woman emperor of China, which is Empress Wu, uh, and it's really her and Sun Xi. They're, they're they stand apart from just about every other woman in China, just because uh, their their rises to power share a lot in common. As you sure. said, they both start out as these lowly concubines, and then just through their own ruthlessness and 
intellect, just desire for power, come to be the the puppet master behind the throne. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting story. It's almost a shame that the the side that she chose to to weigh in on was in fact the one that would lead to the well the the depredations of, of the Boxer Rebellion, but. And, I mean, and ultimately, her own dynasty's destruction. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so we can say, oh, she had like great tact. She was lots of guile and all that kind of thing, and she was mm-hmm. wily enough to to know what to do. But the engendered like stagnation that really needed a kick by this stage. And I found, I don't yeah. know, I don't know if you struggle with this, but when I'm looking at Chinese history, I find it difficult to basically say, okay, the, like the Chinese had their problems, but I'm, I find it difficult to say that the Chinese had their problems without making it sound like I'm letting the imperialists off scot-free, if that makes sense. As in, like, as in, like, how, how do you right. say, um, how, how do you say, like, you can't blame everything that happens in the Boxer Rebellion purely on the Western powers, or can you? Can you blame the fact that China was, mm. like, kind of in, in the throes of the, the twilight years of its dynasty? Can you blame that on the imperial powers, or can you blame that on the Chinese themselves? Well, I think I'm in the same boat as you. I, I I can't say I blame either piece of this puzzle, you know, independently. I think I think in the Chinese case, it was with both the Ming and to a lesser extent the Qing, they had both kind of and Japan for that matter as well. They they adopted this sort of closed door policy in the 17th and 18th centuries. At any other point in history prior to that point, if they had done this, and they'd done it before, mm. it wouldn't have been a problem because the technological you know, progression had been such relatively at such a relatively slow pace that you could you, you could close your country off for a hundred or two hundred years and and come back and oh you're still you know at the top of your game compared to everybody else. But that they chose it to do it just by dumb luck at the time where Europe was starting to kick off its industrial revolution and the age yeah. of exploration, it really blindsided them when oh by the way we have now cannons and muskets and ships and. We're knocking at your door, and you're still yeah. using crossbows. Yeah, I <laughs> think yeah. I think there was a lot of I don't know if denial is the right word to use, but this belief that it, within China and the and the Chinese government that they knew better. So, like whatever technological advances the West had, oh, they were just poor imitations of the Chinese version anyway. So we don't need to worry, kind of thing. Do you think that's a, a fair thing to say? Absolutely. I mean, that, and it's not not limited to the Chinese worldview at all. Uh, I'd say just about every culture, especially powerful culture, adopts it to one extent or another. But the Chinese were very much of a view that they were the literal centers of the universe. Everything revolved around them. They were the creators of everything good and useful. And and if the Europeans got any of their technology, well, that was a a sad uh, sort of mistake, but, you know, maybe the barbarians would be able to use it, but uh, yeah. they certainly couldn't do it better or anything like that, and uh, they were proved wrong. I'd, I'd like to talk just a little bit about the kind of situation. I don't know how much you know about this, because I'm aware that you're not up this far in your podcast just yet, but mm-hmm. the actual domestic situation by the 1900, when the Boxed Rebellion breaks out, it's a bit of a strange situation, because so she has monopolized power for herself, essentially, and mm-hmm. her, her nephew, the emperor, who I pronounced as Wang Shu, but I believe that's not exactly correct. I think you're pretty much right on that, actually. So 
Guangxu, Guangxu, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Well, I, I was close enough, as close as I think I'll ever be. I did better than yeah. I did the first time around, which is, it's good enough for You're me. right on. It's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the actual domestic situation in China, it was unusual, mainly because, well, I suppose so she wanted to... She wanted to monopolize power for herself, and her nephew were, was kind of part of the, not the modernizing, like, kind of movement. I don't want to make it sound more kind of ahead mm-hmm. of its time than it was, but certainly she represented kind of the old order, and her nephew represented a, a new, fresh face. And she did not, yeah. under any circumstances, want to let that fresh face take over and change China. Well, yeah, I think your characterization, your characterization is pretty much right on. Uh, Guangxi was a very young guy. Self-strengthening movement had kind of petered out by the early 1890s. But then in 1898, Guangxi institutes this really concentrated attempt to sort of reinitiate that that self-strengthening and that westernization movement. So your, your characterization of him as, as being much more gung-ho about the sort of modernization and westernization, I think you're right on with that. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and it's called the, the 100 Days of Reform, or the 100 oh, Days of Reform. Oh, yes, I remember that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it ends, as as you kind of alluded to, with Sissi and her cronies uh, basically shutting that show completely down and mm. uh, locking... Emperor Guangxu in his room and performing a coup d'etat and seizing power for themselves and, and then unmaking all of those reforms. Over yeah. those days. You said before it kind of contributed to the end of the, the dynasty, really. I mean, mm-hmm. do you think that I don't I don't know. I don't want to get you in trouble in case Big Brother is watching. But do you think <laughs> that the uh, this fact that like it, it contributed to the end, like the Boxer Rebellion? I don't know. How, how is that actually seen today in China, if it is at all seen? Oh, that's an excellent question. And don't worry, you're not getting me in trouble. Uh, uh, the Boxer Rebellion in, in particular is seen, it, it's actually really interesting, the the way that the, the cross-straight sort of idea of it has has come about. And when I say cross-straight, for, for anyone who's not uh, necessarily sure what I mean there, I mean the, the Taiwan Strait. So we've got the, the People's Republic in China today, which controls the totality of, of mainland China, uh, so-called communist State, and then um, in Taiwan we've got the Republic of China, as they call themselves. Although the PRC frowns on anyone else using that name, or indeed <laughs> trading with them at all, <laughs> or trading with them, or taking phone calls from them, or, or anything or, of the or sort, or using their phones, because don't don't HTC phones get made there? I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe that is a Taiwanese brand. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, especially the, the, the breakdown in, in those two societies where in Taiwan, a lot of historians, they look at the boxers as kind of xenophobic, ignorant, sort of superstitious weirdos. That's, that's a lot of interpretation that comes out of, out of Taiwanese school. Sure. Versus in the, in the PRC, interpretation is kind of shunned, and instead they view them as patriotic, anti-imperialist, you know, go-getters. Quite a stark difference. Mm, big time, yeah. And is there any kind of realization or like acceptance that the kind of the Boxer Rebellion really touched off like the beginning of the end of, well, a, a big epoch in Chinese history, really? Because after this, kind of the dynasty's on a downward spiral and essentially it, it's all yeah. over a decade later. But it is. Is there any kind of sense that I see again? I'm falling into the trap. I don't want to make it seem like it was the Chinese fault, but uh, is there any kind of sense today that the Box Rebellion was a bad thing because it led to the the revolution in 1911 and further downward okay. spirals down the line? Well, let me 
address that first and foremost of the the Chinese understanding of it today. I think on, on I can say for both sides of the both Taiwan and the mainland is that they view the Xinhai Republican Revolution as great and glorious and the ultimate path to restoration of their greatness. Oh, I They're, see. They don't. They do not view the end of the dynastic system as anything bad, oh. especially because it was the Qing, and the Qing was another conquest dynasty. It was right. not Chinese. Uh, they, uh, the end of the Qing, the end of, of foreign domination by these Manchus was considered and is considered to be a fantastic thing uh, by, by virtually everybody. Okay, that's interesting. I just assumed because it, it would such a such a massive change from the way Chinese history had always progressed. I just assumed it would be seen as a bad thing. That's very interesting. The people who led up to that that revolution that would end the dynasty they are considered to be the the fathers of the nation: Sun Yat-sen, Chiang Kai-shek, and even Mao Zedong, of course, yeah, in mm. the mainland. Yeah. They're all considered to be the the people who brought China out of you know slavery and antiquity and into modernity. Right. Okay, yeah. I suppose I can see that in a way. That, that kind of makes sense. Looking from my Western point of view, I can see that the Chinese, they didn't really have it very well after, like, a kind of imperialism continued almost on steroids after the Boxer Rebellion. So in my, in my opinion, then, it, it would be seen as bad. But I suppose, on the other hand, the Westerners are going to imperialize either way. Well, and then and then the other point I wanted to make on that exact topic, then, was that the Boxer Rebellion fits inside what's a larger understanding in the Chinese history and worldview, which is known as the the century of national humiliation, mm. which actually begins with the first opium war. Yeah. And, yeah. and ends with the end of the second world war. Right. Yeah. Oh, I can see the, the grounds for calling that a center of national humiliation would be absolutely fairly accurate. I think. Yeah. I said in the, in the original one that, I think that the opium war was probably the worst thing that the British ever did, and and this is coming mm. from a guy who's who's from Ireland. Like there isn't really <laughs> much, uh, <laughs> like you you mentioned the famine, the potato famine over here, and people people suddenly get all patriotic and stuff and raise a glass right. to to the famine. But at least the the British didn't fight us, so they could sell us drugs. You know, it could have been worse, <sighs> I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah um well let, let's talk a little bit about the, the boxers themselves because i always mm-hmm. find this very interesting and actually i mentioned this in the five-year-old episode the original one and i mentioned it in the remastered one because i found it so interesting mm-hmm. there was a movement in just to kind of provide some kind of comparison to the boxers there was a movement in native Amer- amongst native american tribes in the 1890s called the ghost dance movement yes and they basically put forward the same kind of ideas as the boxers did that oh they're invulnerable to bullets with with a lot of concentration and meditation you can resist mm-hmm. the western influences and all that kind of thing i don't really know how to pose a question about that but i just thought did, did, were you aware of that or indeed of any other examples of of kind of like boxer mentality spreading across the world yeah i'm glad i'm glad you brought up the ghost dance because i'd actually written that down in notes as a comparison um mm. Yeah, and it's from what I've I've read about it, you actually find this pop up in a lot of sort of millennialist sort of doomsday kind of uh, societies that are facing potential either extermination or you know drastic world changing epochal shift kind of things. Uh, if I remember correctly, there were certain societies in sub-Saharan Africa that also adopted this very similar thing to the ghost dance or to the the boxer sort of. Uh, 
focusing chi to deflect bullets yeah. and things. So you do see this pop up in societies that are facing imperialism, uh, sure. yeah, conquest. Yeah. yeah. And okay. it's, it's societies that, that are uh, fundamentally breaking down. And so you get this sort of doomsdayist, magical thinking kind of. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I think the thing that, that it's important to remember with with the boxers certainly, but also the the Native Americans with the ghost dance, and also the, the the African populations, is these are primarily extremely young people, extremely young men. I mean, we're talking teenagers for the most part. There's no, there's virtually no thirty year olds right. in any of these movements, you know. <laughs> yeah. So so they are. I mean, you think to any fifteen, sixteen year old kid, and and they are going to be more susceptible to this kind of giving into stress and and sort of magical thinking and potentially being a, a bit more vulnerable to the more eccentric ideas that that others might put forward especially in times of great stress oh sure yeah i get that completely and and i mean great stress really epitomizes what was going on in china mm-hmm. at this time the boxers themselves though i just found it interesting because you said that they they didn't really have anyone really other than kind of like the young people but i mean so she was a, a huge kind of I don't know necessarily if you call her a convert, but she certainly believed in them enough to issue a whole load of orders, basically saying, leave the boxers alone, the boxers right. are, are good kind of thing. Well, she kind of did that. She did that once it kind of became clear that the the eight power alliance of the West was not really going to back down and that the boxers might be something that she could utilize against them. She was kind of. She wasn't like a super convert to their ideas or beliefs. I I would put forth that she, in her very you know conniving empress way, yeah. used them just like she'd use any other tool. She saw it as something that she could potentially potentially make use of. Yeah, and and as well, I think when we come back to the the idea of who was and who wasn't following them. The entire south of China essentially didn't. Like, parts of it didn't even know about the Boxer Rebellion. 
Absolutely. And that was that was very calculated. One of the things that we got to understand uh, is that China at this time, it might have, you know, looked like a single nation on a map, but it was in the process of beginning to break apart into its constituent regions. Following the 1911 revolution that saw the end of the dynasty, it wasn't like, oh, well, now it's just the Republic of China and we're it's still just one thing. We get this whole warlord period of warlord states that are fighting against each other. And this was already happening, certainly in the 1890s. So especially in the south of China, you had a whole bunch of governors who basically get the order from the empress saying, hey, we're going to war, guys. And they just – they pocket it and they don't say anything and they make sure that none of their people hear about it and they stay neutral. <laughs> so this is kind of like the beginning of the generalissimos popping up all over the place, really. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I, I often found it interesting even that a country – the size and like density of China was able to kind of stick together, but I suppose at this stage it really wasn't sticking together at all. Well, that, yeah, it's it's this uh, it's another sort of a Chinese cycle to the point where there's the there's the old phrase uh, that stems all the way back to the Three Kingdoms in the third century, which is you know China is a country that uh, if long united it must divide, and if long divided it must unite. <laughs> yeah, that's that's accurate. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can see I can certainly see that in this case. It just struck me as, as interesting because people who, well, even myself originally, when I just thought the Box Rebellion, I was like, oh, it's a Chinese rebellion against the entirety of the West kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not. It's a, it's a very small movement, and most right. people in their desperation turn to it because, well, they have very few other options. This is probably putting you on the spot a bit, but can you think of any, like, examples of kind of, like, Western imperialism in, in particular? I mean, the big one for me is spread of christianity which mm-hmm. which kind of it really divided chinese opinion and and drew some really strong protests mainly because a lot of the chinese converts they did so disingenuously a lot of the time to escape kind of national law in other words so what what you often have and now this didn't happen all the time but sometimes a, a runaway chinese prisoner could escape from his 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 local kind of guards and then convert mm-hmm. to Catholicism and then maybe hide in a, in a Western embassy. I know that did, that didn't happen all the time. There was genuine converts, but examples like those were essentially a, a prisoner found asylum in, in foreign justice was seen as completely unfair. And, and I mean, rightfully so like basically taking sure. advantage of the situation. Is there any, is there any other kind of examples? I mean, Christianity is the one that sticks out to me as the kind of the big bugbear of, of Chinese nationalism. Yeah, and I think you're you're right on with the the Christian missionary work um, being kind of tolerated, but only barely. And as you say, this this proved a, a real sticking point. I think in it was in a, just right before the Boxer Rebellion, uh, another society that was kind of similar to the Boxers, but it was called the Big Swords. They they burst into this uh, monastery in northern China and they end up murdering two German priests, oh, and yeah. it triggers this whole international backlash and suddenly germany russia japan and britain and uh, i don't think the u.s but maybe they were all trying to get concessions out of china for it Mm. this was Uh, i believe sorry to interrupt you this was like beginning this is the beginning of demanding land rather than kind of monetary concessions and that was kind of touched off the scramble for i mean the scramble for china had been happening since the 1830s but this was what really kind of 
touched off the whole we need a port the chinese have a port that port is our port now kind of thing <laughs> yeah that, that that had also gone back to the the opium wars as well with forcing over shanghai and was shaman and prior prior to that uh guangdong or canton had been the only port open to foreign trade but uh, yeah. they, they, the british had to force open three or four other ports all, all along the chinese coast uh, and and also take away hong kong as well sure uh, yeah but then the, the other the other uh, Christian thing that uh, I remember right offhand is that uh, there had been a temple to the Jade Emperor, which is the highest god in the classical Chinese sort of Taoist pantheon. Right. And that had been converted in the 1860s into a Catholic church, which, you know, made a whole bunch of people in the area uh, understandably rather miffed. And yeah. You're, you're putting our temple to our highest god into some other god's uh, house of worship. Uh, that's... Uh, that that ended up forming into to a boxer attack, I think, right before the rebellion. Mm, I'm not surprised. They weren't exactly the most sensitive of of uh, <laughs> proselytizers at, at this time. Yeah, I mean, it certainly didn't didn't help matters. It didn't seek to calm nerves or anything like that. I I know that when the boxer rebellion kind of erupted, if you like, one of the major targets were Christians and. Yes. arguably even more of a target were Chinese converts to Christianity and that's mm-hmm. why you had a lot of them seeking refuge in the kind of foreign embassies. Absolutely, yeah. Christians, foreigners in general, Chinese converts who were deemed to be essentially race traitors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there'd always been a kind of a kind as much as there was in the west of course but the the uh, the kind of latent racism and my dad always proves the example that the the chinese word for a uh, foreigner is the same for barbarian but is that actually true um at one point some some uh, archaic words do have that uh, sort of affixment or attachment or that that component to them the modern word no absolutely not okay. um, mo- <laughs> modern word just means outside country person that's all it means okay okay <laughs> my dad will be very disappointed <laughs> but many but but he's not he's not wrong uh it's just many of the the older words for especially china's neighbors that directly surrounding it it was quite derogatory it was like you know the the bug people the snake people the <laughs> you know all of which yeah. is all of which was considered highly derogatory. Yeah, well, I mean, the the British called the Irish people worse. I mean, we, they never called us the Bug People, but I mean, <laughs> the, some of the, some of those uh, cartoons in Punch were pretty pretty. Like I find them funny, but back then I'm sure they were pretty offensive. But I want to mm-hmm. just uh, speaking of kind of like propaganda, well, not propaganda, but kind of cartoons. I just want to point to that that famous image of the picture of the the Chinese. Kind mm-hmm. of, it's like one of the most famous images in propaganda history. But it's like that cartoon with the with the Chinese kind of official in the background and the mm-hmm. kind of pie of China on the table and all the powers kind of around it, cutting it up into pieces. You have Victoria, you have Tsar Nicholas II, you have kind of the the Russian the the, the German Kaiser, you have France, and you have Japan. And I mean, mm-hmm. the, this kind of it really captures the mindset of. Well, how the Chinese saw themselves, but also how, I mean, how the world saw China as well. This was in a French journal now in, in 1898. So this was before yes. the actual Boxer Rebellion broke out. But it kind of made me think about what other, like, what, what the people in their own countries thought about the Chinese being carved up. Because it's not like this was a, 
a Chinese cartoon that was used to kind of bolster national confidence. This was no. <laughs> developed in the West. Like this, this cartoon was developed in the West and it kind of depicted that, like, I mean, you could see in the picture, the Chinese official obviously being very upset and saying, stop cutting up my, my country pie for lack of a better term. But yes. do you think, do you think that people from the West were maybe, I don't want to say that they were kind of remorseful, but do you think they were aware that the the fact that carving up China might not have been such a good thing? Putting myself back into that time and that position, you know, I, I don't think that they would have seen it as remorseful. Um, oh. I don't think there would have been any kind of a moral qualm about that. Just like I don't think there was anything of a moral qualm in the, the race for Africa or yeah. the Americas, for that matter. I mean, the, the colonization drive was... It was uh, just, you know, economically imperial, but there was also that that moral component to it as well, where these people had constructed these very elaborate and very convincing, at least to them, reasons as to why they were doing this and why it was ultimately in, you know, this this people to be colonized best interest. Uh, We're spreading we're spreading Christianity. We're spreading civilization. We're spreading our technology. We're trading. We're opening up the world. Isn't this wonderful? Why would you fight this kind of a thing? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I get that. Yeah. Even shooting forward for a second, once Japan sort of becomes the hegemon of of East Asia, what they called their their empire as they expanded across the Pacific and into China and Southeast Asia. What was their name for it? It was the Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. Oh, you know, yeah. Very, very kind of, happy sounding name. Yeah, some kind of cooperative or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> smiles, and shun- smiles and sunshine and rainbows for everybody. Yeah, as if there'd be like this this lovely cooperative we could all draw upon equally. Mm-hmm. No sign of slavery or, or hard labor oh. or being drained of your resources. No, no, no. Perished thought. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the the actual Boxer Rebellion itself when it starts. And I mean, it starts and it, I don't know. I, I don't think you could say it took the Western powers by surprise because I mean, there's only so far you can push people <laughs> before it kind of erupts. But once it, once it breaks out, then you need like, you have all these embassies that are basically under siege in, in, in Beijing. So you need to mm-hmm. rescue them. So they send in sailors, they send in a, a well, like what's called the Seymour expedition, right. and once once that it reaches it reaches Beijing in about the middle of June, and yep. they're transported by train, but the railway had been severed by the boxers, and it kind mm-hmm. of it adds to a bit of the the panic in 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 amongst the embassies, and I think there's a kind of standoff for a very long time. How how much do you know about that that kind of time? Seymour Expedition, I know it had had permission to be in Tianjin, which is about 120 or so kilometers southeast of Beijing. So quite close, but still far enough away where they'd need a train. And so they had permission to be there. But then Seymour, Vice Admiral Edward Seymour, that is, he decides he needs to go, as you say, rescue the diplomats that are now barricading themselves inside of the the uh, their quarter of the forbidden city in Beijing. They'd figured out very quickly that the the Qing dynasty was not messing around uh, yeah. when I, the German diplomat goes and tries to make his way to the throne room to try to present his his uh complaint about this and he's cut down in the street by by some uh officer. And so at this point there's oh wow, well this is you know obviously yeah. we can't do anything. 
so they end up barricading themselves in in their uh, their region of the capital. So anyway, yeah, as, as you were saying, Seymour he tries to make his way to the to the capital from Tianjin, and he's got about I think it's about two thousand or so, maybe a little bit more than two thousand yeah. troops with him. Yeah, they're pri- there's this multinational force. I think it's primarily Japanese and Russian, with you know smaller numbers of all the other eight powers. Mm. And it's it's this weird thing because they get to this place called Longfang. They're ambushed uh, about five thousand Chinese. About two thousand or so of them are, are actual boxers, and then the other three thousand are this other group called the Gansu Braves, and they're actually Muslim troops from Western oh, China. Right. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. They've kind of allied together in defense of the Qing dynasty. The the uh, sort of rallying qu- cry was to revive the Qing and destroy the foreigners. That was the the banner that they flew under. The Chinese, they're attacking in these human waves. They feel like they cannot get hit by bullets. The cannon's just going to bounce right off of them, hmm. uh, which is going to freak anybody out. These 5,000 dudes just running at you. They don't care if they get hit or not. The 5,000 Chinese, they basically they attack this this deputation of, of 2,000 or so troops. Mm-hmm. And they, they, win a, they win a victory, essentially, don't they? Yeah, they do. Uh, a very costly victory, but yeah. a victory. Yeah. And this, this kind of pushes the Western powers kind of back into Jensen. And then because of that, then there's, there seems to be no hope of relief for the beleaguered embassy people. Right. It's looking very grim for the, the diplomats and the, the Christians and the civilians who are locked away in, uh, in Beijing. And the Eight Nation Alliance actually sends the Empress, to she, she, they send her this ultimatum demanding this total surrender of all her military and financial uh, powers to this, this foreign alliance. That's really what pushes her into fully backing the boxers and the uh, Gansu Braves. Because it's this this demand for total capitulation, essentially, yeah. which is, you know, what what else could she possibly do? Exactly, yeah, of course. She doesn't really have a choice at this rate. They basically made an enemy out of her, and mm-hmm. now because of that, she's, she's forced into throwing her lot in with arguably a lost cause, because she must have known that, I mean, the boxers couldn't resist forever kind of thing. <laughs> There are people who walk around with bare shirts, uh, with bare chests, carrying nothing more than spears and swords, going up against cannon and gunfire. I, I think she must have known that, that <laughs> yeah. there was going to be problems down the road. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there was then there was a good bit of conflicting attitudes within the the imperial court as well. There was like some of the some of the imperial soldiers actually fought alongside the boxers, and some of them. Did not. I mean, we already pointed out in the south there was essentially no support of the rebellion whatsoever. Right. I think. Well, let, maybe let's talk about the Eight Power Alliance actually sending over its force and that that famous scene of the Kaiser Wilhelm saying basically like, "Oh uh, yeah," and, and he was unfortunate enough to use the word "hun." And <laughs> ever since then, even though he was very much playing a part in the kind of mood of imperialism and, and revenge, certainly at the time for killing the Western Christians. The term, the term "hun" really kind of came back to haunt him, really, for the rest of the Germans' lives. Uh, absolutely. Oh man, that, that that's got to be one of the most unfortunate turn of phrases there's ever been, yeah. because it has haunted Germany ever since then. Oh, big time! Yeah. Kaiser Wilhelm he commands his troops and sends this proclamation saying, "Should you encounter the enemy, he will be defeated. No quarter will be given." Prisoners will not be taken. Whoever falls into your hands is forfeited. 
Just as a thousand years ago, the Huns under their king Attila made a name for themselves, one that even today makes them seem mighty in history and legend. May the name German be affirmed by you in such a way in China that no Chinese will ever again dare look cross-eyed at a German. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say 14 (laughs) or 15 years later, he very much regretted saying that, but... Oh, man, and the, the Americans and the Brits loved him for it because that just wrote their propaganda posters for them. Absolutely, yeah. And, we, of course, we know the one of my favorite images is the, the German Kaiser kind of depicted as like a big spider with a, with a web trapping all of the like the, oh, good yeah. West, the good other powers in it. And, of course, he's dressed as like he's uh, – or like they depict him as like a big skeletal kind of figure, like mm-hmm. reaching his kind of skeletal hand at – at like the the kind of good like the power of France or like especially like picking up a Belgian citizen and about being yeah. able to eat them like he couldn't make it up like oh it's no really, it's quite it's the, quite fantastic the truly ironic thing though was that in this conflict in the Boxer Rebellion the Germans played almost no actual direct part in the suppression they they had a teeny number of troops uh, as mm. part of the alliance I don't think they even made it to any battle on time. However, they did participate in the the mop up operations, which were horrible enough as it was. I mean, yeah, pillaging, yeah. looting, murders, rapes, all that stuff. Mm. Certainly did their part of that, but the, the the minuscule nature of the German involvement is so out magnified by the the infamy that that phrase uh, <laughs> has. It's, yeah. it's it's pretty incredible. Absolutely, absolutely. After the Eight Nation Alliance come in and kind of they defeat the boxers essentially, but. So she she retains her power and she kind of stays on afterwards, basically because mm-hmm. the Allies decide that it'll be too costly to get rid of her. And she, as yeah. a kind of puppet, she'd be useful. Yeah, essentially the in the course of this conflict, the, the Allies realize that almost kind of better the enemy that we know versus the enemy we don't. And they realize that they don't understand the boxers or any of these other peasant groups they don't understand the chinese population or their mindset but they understand the imperial court and they understand so she and that's somebody who they can deal with directly Mm. and rather than having china fragment into a million different pieces of you know hormonally addled teenagers with swords (laughs) it's better to keep her on the throne sure of course of course one of the reasons why the Boxer Rebellion so fascinates me is because of how it impacts Russia in particular and mm-hmm. how the kind of Anglo-Russian rivalry is is really given a boost after this because the Russians go on to kind of occupy Manchuria in the north in the north of China, which which is doubly bad, I mean, for, for the British because it shows that the Russians don't seem to stop expanding, but for the Japanese because they kind of seen China as their like playground, if you like, mm-hmm. and it really it brings the the British and the Japanese closer together and drives the British and the Russians further apart. The, what the Russians do is they, they kind of take their part and they send in, you know, a f- couple hundred thousand troops into Manchuria to supposedly crush the boxers. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it's to occupy the, the territory, which has got to be an especially cruel blow to the imperial court because that's their, that's their ancient homeland that's suddenly mm. being invaded and taken away. In the terms of the treaty, they got, I think, most, if not all of it, back. Because I think the treaty was that China wouldn't lose any of its territory and the Empress would keep all of her power uh, over the country. But it certainly made everybody realize the the power of Russia, at least over land, 
made Britain quite wary of that. It also ma- it also made Japan quite wary of that. I mean, there were, that feeds into the conflicts that would happen between Russia and Japan over northern Asia. Get Japan much more interested in in making sure that that it could hold on to that area of the mainland of, of East Asia as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we could talk a bit about just briefly, just even about the open door policy and how the Anglo-American interest really revolved around the idea of of kind of keeping China open to trade with all countries, like on an equal basis, and stopping any kind of one single power from maintaining control over basically all of China, making China their puppet state. I think we can see that that might sound, in a way, a nice thing to do, and certainly the... The propaganda made in America showed like Uncle Sam putting his foot down and and stopping the other powers like right. carving up China for themselves. It's almost a a foil to that pie uh, cartoon that I mentioned earlier. It's kind of Uncle Sam is standing on the pie and and the other countries are standing around with their knives and he's saying <laughs> no and he's holding up this document. It's a I really do I I really do uh, enjoy looking at the the cartoons of this era. But oh, they're it, fantastic! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it provides a different kind of angle to. I mean. The British and Americans did this out of their own interest. I mean, they weren't doing it out of any love for the Chinese. It was to stop. Oh, of course, it was yeah. <laughs> to stop the Russians in particular because the Russians were building the Trans-Siberian Railway. And I had a talk episode, a collaboration episode, rather with Mark Painter from the History of the Twentieth Century podcast, and we were talking mm-hmm. about how when the Jap- when the Russo-Japanese War, which which really is kind of touched off by this in a major way, oh, the yes. Russo-Japanese War kind of happened. Once the Japanese realized that if they, they preemptively strike the Russians before they can finish their railway, then they'll have a huge advantage. But I think the impact Absolutely. of the railway, the impact of the railway at this stage kind of opening China up, I suppose, more Russian imperialism. I mean, I don't, as far as the Russian end goal goes, it needed the warm water port. It only had Vladivostok and that could freeze mm-hmm. over during about half of the year. So they went for Port Arthur. And of course, we know how that went. The, the Japanese yeah. took it in a, a kind of a an imitation of a a prelude to kind of Pearl Harbor, if you like, an attack that took the Russians by surprise, destroyed their fleet and kind of made the whole region kind of vulnerable to a Japanese attack. I don't want to get too much into the Russo-Japanese war, but... Sure, sure. No, I I think think you're right. I think that's uh, very much fed into the Second World War's uh, strategy in the Pacific was it, well, it worked so well last time, uh, kind of a thing. Exactly, exactly. And that's what kind of me and Mark kind of came to the conclusion to. The Japanese were taught by this that attacking a power that seems stronger than you, taking away its advantages in one mm-hmm. like one fell swoop, it kind of worked. So let's do it again. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think I think we're coming to the end of, of our of our collaboration episode now. I wanna say a huge a huge thanks to you and and would you like to plug your podcast once more? Well, I sure would. Thank you very much once again for having me on, Zach. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, once again, I am Chris Stewart. I run the History of China podcast. You can find that on iTunes or anywhere else you'd like to look or at thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com. Cool. And if people would like to be your patron, that would be okay. <laughs> that would very much be okay. You can find me at patreon.com slash thehistoryofchina. Cool. Thanks thanks very much for coming on, Chris. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Alrighty. What did we think of that? I, for one, had a really good time doing it, and I hope you had a good time listening to it. A reminder again, if you would like to let Chris know what you thought about it, that would be great as well, because if you spread the word about both of our podcasts, then that's doubly beneficial. 
And the thing that I loved about these collaborations is that I was able to, well, like, not only was it great to get people who do podcasts onto the podcast, but if I can share a little bit of the publicity, which I hope will come towards this podcast for having two episodes ever but if I can share some of the publicity, which I hope will be coming towards this podcast for having two episodes out every day, then that'd be great. And you guys can participate in the sharing of that publicity. How do you do that? Well, by checking out Chris's, well, website, by going to the historyofchina.wordpress.com. Also, find him in the usual places. And remember to support both of us, because we love doing this, we love doing history, and we love doing podcasting. And perhaps one day we will love you. Anyway, <laughs> before we get weird, let's get out of here. Thanks for listening, guys. My name is Zach. We've been running wild. And I'll talk to you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.